Turn your attention now to your bulletin insert or the screen behind me where you will find our sermon passage for today, found in the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. Hear the word of the Lord. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice, For all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you... Even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Thank you, Ivan. Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here at Redeemer, the city congregation. It's so good to see so many of you here this morning. We continue this morning in a series in the Gospel of Luke. We're actually coming to the very end, and some of you will probably be relieved at that, seeing as we've been in Luke's Gospel for about a year and a half now, believe it or not. Uh, But for these weeks in the Lenten season, we are going to take a look at the last few days of Jesus' life, what we're going to call his journey to the cross. In each of the Gospels, there's a large percentage of the Gospel itself that's given to just a very few days at the very end of Jesus' life. And so the Gospel writers seem to think that there's particular significance to the time between when Jesus here in Luke 19 rides into the city of Jerusalem until his crucifixion and resurrection, which we'll celebrate later you know, in Easter and Palm Sunday, Palm Sunday and Easter and beyond. And so, for these six weeks, we're going to be just kind of looking at some of the episodes that happened in his life. This morning, we begin uh, here in what we call his triumphal entry. Now, my, my doctrine, you might say, the theme of what we're going to be talking about throughout these weeks together is that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to death. He's going to Jerusalem to a cross, and he wants you and I to go with him. And that's the theme of this, of this series. It really is the theme of Luke's gospel. 
Uh, last week, Jonathan preached on this. In Luke 9, we were, we were told that he resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem. He turned back to his disciples and he said, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross. So Jesus has resolutely set his face toward, toward Jerusalem. And he wants us to go with him. And if we're going to do that, if we're going to successfully do that and live as, this, as his disciples, we're going to learn, we're going to have to learn how to deal uh, with sadness. So happy Valentine's Day. It's a great Valentine's Day sermon. We're going to talk about sadness this morning. And the reason we're going to talk about sadness this morning is because, uh, because of what you see there, how I intro this, this sermon. Sadness and love always go together. You can't, be, you can't really move into love without moving into the threat of sadness, and therefore we need to find courage. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. How do we begin to be people who learn the life skill of how to deal with sadness? Because the prophet Isaiah characterized Messiah, the servant of the Lord figure, in Isaiah 53, as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And this was true of Jesus. You don't have to look long in the passages, you know, of the Gospels to see that he, he lived with a broken heart. And you see it here in this passage, don't you? Look at verse 41. He grieves over Jerusalem. He begins to weep over the city. He grieves because he loves. And if we're going to love, if we're going to love one another, if we're going to love our families, if we're going to love our city, if we're going to love anything, then we're going to have to deal with sadness too. Because C.S. Lewis said, there's no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, he said. Anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. And the only other option, Lewis said, is to refuse to give your heart to anyone, not even to an animal. He says, don't even give it to an animal because they'll break your heart too. Keep your heart locked up safe and and tight. But the problem, the problem is that when you shut the door, excuse me, when you shut the door of your heart to keep the pain and the sadness out, you also shut the door to the possibility of love. When you shut your door out of fear to keep the pain and the sadness out, all you really end up doing is shutting the door on the possibility for love. If you guard yourself against sadness, you'll grow unfeeling and cynical because love always, love always carries with it the possibility of sadness. So you can't have one without the other. If we're going to love, we have to learn the lesson of how to live with a broken heart, which Jesus does perfectly, by the way. He does it perfectly, and so we have a lot to learn from him. And the issue, as I want you to see here, the issue really that we're talking about this morning then is courage because if love and sadness go together, then love takes courage. Love really does take courage. And so if I can mention C.S. Lewis just one more time again, because I found this so profound. In, in his, his book, Screwtape Letters, he puts into the mouth of Screwtape, the senior demon, some very insightful wisdom. Here, here are his words. Uh, he has the demon saying this. He says, hatred has its pleasures. It is the compensation by which a frightened man reimburses himself for the miseries of his fear. The more he fears, the more he will hate. And hatred is also a great painkiller for shame. So to make deep wounds in a man's charity and his love, you should therefore first defeat his courage. So Lewis, Lewis says, the great strategy of evil to get us to not love well is to make us afraid. Because if he can take away our courage, he can take away our poss- the possibility of our love because love takes courage. Now, Here's what, here's what Lewis is saying, I think. He says, when you're hurt, or when you're afraid, or when you're just feeling bad about yourself, you have a choice. You can allow yourself to become angry, or you can just be sad. And it's harder to be sad because there's a payoff with anger. It feels good. It, these are his words. It was really helpful. It reimburses the pain, and it makes you feel better. If you're angry, 
If you're angry and your anger is directed at someone or at some group or whatever it might be, if you dig into that very deeply, you'll find fear or you'll find hurt, something like that. But the, because the root of anger is typically fear. And if that's true, then the root of courage, the root of love is courage. And so you cannot, you cannot love unless you're willing to live with a broken heart and therefore you cannot love without courage. It takes courage, unbelievable courage to really face sadness. And so to be angry, to be cynical, or to just shut down, that's easy. That's cowardly. It takes courage to just be sad. You tracking? You with me? Can you feel that? I mean, I feel it. It's hard. But if we're going to go to Jerusalem with him, it's a life skill that we have to learn. And so this is what we're going to talk about this morning, okay? So from this text that we have here in Luke 19, in order to get the courage that we need to be sad, we need courage in order to be sad because only then can we truly love In order to get the courage we need to be sad, you need to see, first, you need to see the conquering king. Jesus here is the conquering king. This is his triumphal entry. But secondly, he is not just the conquering king. He is the conquering king who's also the weeping king. And when you see the conquering king who is at the same time the weeping king, what will happen in each of our lives is that you will, will, when you see him, you will find your voice and you will find your mission. So let's look together this morning at this conquering king who is also the weeping king and pray that he helps us find our voice and that he helps us find our our mission. So let's just start with the conquering king. Okay, you see that in your outline. So in order to get the courage you need to be sad, you have to see Jesus, the conquering king. The crowds here in Luke 19, as they begin to celebrate him and sing, they are singing from Psalm 118, which was our call to worship passage that Jonathan read just a minute ago. This, This expectation and hope of the one who would come in the name of the Lord. Here they translate it. They say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And so there was this great Old Testament expectation of a Messiah figure, a a king, the son of David who would come, and in his coming, everything that went wrong would be made right again. That sin and death and suffering and pain and, and the plight of God's people would be reversed and they would find themselves on the winning side again. And so it was this great Jewish messianic hope and expectation. But what the funny thing is, is it's not just a Jewish hope. It's a human hope as well. It shows up not only in the Old Testament scriptures that we have, but in all of the old legends and stories that captivate us. King Arthur, for example, in ancient British mythology, the legend says that on his tombstone was written the inscription, Arthur, king once, king in the future. Arthur, the once and future king. Or modern fantasy fiction, this idea of a messianic hero, a king who you think is gone and then who comes back and he puts everything right by conquering the enemy. It's everywhere. We can't get away from it. It's very powerful. It's all over the place. I mean, think about this. There are few royal families left in the world, but those, but those few royal families are the biggest celebrities in the world. Everybody loves them. They're fascinated by them. Why? Why are we so captivated by the idea of kings and queens? Even in America, even in America, there are no kings here, but we turn people into kings. And so Lewis, C.S. Lewis, one more time, he said, where we're forbidden to honor a king, we will honor millionaires, athletes, film stars instead, and even gangsters. Four, spiritual nature like bodily nature will be served. Deny it food, it will gobble poison. So when you're starving... When you're starving, you don't care what, food, what, what the food is. It doesn't matter how bad it is. It doesn't matter how bad it will make you feel. It really doesn't even matter how bad it tastes. If you're starving, you gobble it up. So we may think we don't need a king, C.S. Lewis says. We may think, we may say, you know, we're fine all by ourselves, but spiritually we're starving for a king. 
And the Bible teaches us this. It teaches us this in this way. It says that we have to live for something. Every single one of us is made in such a way that <clears throat> something must give us life. There must, something has to give us meaning in life. There has to be something that you're looking to in order to say, ah, because I'm doing that, because I've accomplished that, because I have that in my life, you know, I'm a good person. My life has meaning. I'm a success, whatever it might be. Whatever you're living for, whatever you're living for, we call these things idols. Whatever you're living for, the, the, the thing the Bible teaches is those things, they, they do not serve you. They, call, they, they force you to serve them. The things we live for, the kings we crown in our lives, they don't serve us. They, they force us to serve them. And so the reality is, is we're not in control. Whatever, whatever you're serving, whatever you're living for, that thing has the authority in your life. And in order to have meaning in your life, you have to live for something. Whatever that thing is, whatever it is that you're living for, what we do is we crown it. We literally crown it. So if you're living for your career because of our sinful inclinations, most of us, if we begin to live for our careers, we're actually crowning those careers. And because we crown them, they drive us. We serve them. They become our Lord. Or, you know, you begin to live for your kids. But when you live for your kids, you're literally, you're crowning your kids and they become your masters and you begin to literally live. To, they, you serve them. They don't serve you. We crown things. We crown kings socially. We crown them psychologically and spiritually. Tim Keller makes the observation that we do this. This is a spiritual disease in us because we do this because of what he calls a, it's a, it's a memory trace. And here are his words. This is very helpful. He says, before the breaking of the world, the human race stood in the presence of a true king, a king of absolute glory and splendor and his justice and power and wisdom and his compassion and nobility and beauty were like the sun shining in its full strength, but we lost him when we decided to rule ourselves. We've, we've lost the true king, he says, and when we lost him, everything in the world broke. So when we took things in our, into our own hands, everything good was spoiled. And so all of this was happening as it was going on. The human race is being exiled from God's paradise. In our ancient stories in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, there came a prophecy in Genesis 3, verse 14 and following that said, someone's going to come in the middle of all this mess, all the things that have gone wrong, there's one who will come and he will put things back together again. There's a king and he will come and he will defeat the great dragon that is oppressing the people and he will set them free and he will overthrow evil and the kingdom will once again be full of light and beauty and goodness. It sounds like a fairy tale, doesn't it? Except this one's true. And Tim Keller says, all the leaves of the Bible are wrestling with the whisper and the rumor that the king will come again. And this is what the whole Bible is about. It's speaking to the deepest longings of our human hearts. And you come to Luke 19, and you come to this passage, and the people begin to sing, and you think, here he is. That's why they're singing. I mean, that's the reason the crowds have gathered and they'd be breaking the song, because here he is. The king has finally come. He's finally come back, and so they begin to sing, blessed, verse 38, blessed be the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to God in the highest. And this would have been a very familiar scene in the ancient world. This is the, this is the arrival of a king who's been to battle for his people and is now coming home victorious and triumphant and coming back into the city to retake his place upon his throne. And the people begin to wave palm branches before him and throw their cloaks on the ground and a celebration erupts because the king who is victorious has now come home. And we see here, we see here what all this means. We see what this coming means and why they sing in verse 38 when they begin to sing about peace 
Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Peace. That's the reason they're so excited is because of what the king promises. He promises peace. And it's a really important word in the Bible. And here's what it means. Uh, let me use an, anal- an illustration. A, no- a number, of, about a year or so ago, one of my kids, I can't remember which one, but uh, somebody, uh, and I'm sure if you've been a parent for very long, you've had probably a similar experience. At a carnival or a school event or something, somebody won uh, a, f- a goldfish in the bag, right? So every kid at some point in their life has brought the goldfish home in the plastic bag. And of course, the most treacherous part of that whole thing is somehow you've got to get the goldfish from the bag into the bowl without harming it and causing a whole lot of difficulty. Well, you know, the little girls, I think, at the time were really excited about the new pet, the family pet, because we haven't had a whole lot of pets over the years. And so here's, we have a fish. But in the process of all the hustle and bustle of getting it out of the car, uh, I think Ashley was outside, and all of a sudden you hear, ah, coming from the kitchen. She runs in, and somebody has dropped the bag, and the fish is in a puddle on the, floor, on the kitchen floor, and the fish is flailing and flopping and just, uh, and, and of course, instead of their, you know, the level-headed, you think you'd be level-headed in the moment and say, okay, somebody get this, but everybody's just kind of going, ah, what do we do, you know, all the little kids. And there's the fish, and of course the fish is dying. Now the good news is I think that we rescued the fish, right? It lived that day anyway. I think it only ended up living for like another week, and then it died of natural causes or of trauma that it never, never forgot from this experience. <laughs> Nevertheless... There is the fish flopping and flapping around, doing, here's the thing, doing what it was supposed to be doing. I mean, it's, it's flopping its tail, it's doing what it's supposed to be doing, but it wasn't in the water. So all of the doing was, was only hurting itself. So see, a fish, a fish is made for water, not for little puddles on the kitchen floor. It's an analogy. You and I, we were made to serve the true king, not just to believe in him and go to church, every week or, you know, every other week, but to really believe, serve him, to live for him. And when that happens, when you become that kind of person, when your life, you really, when he becomes the thing you're living for, it's like getting back in the water. Peace, peace there is the Bible, is the word the Bible uses to describe life in the water. It's what the king offers, life in the water for you and me. And that word peace is the word that describes it. There's a little sign of it here. Uh, the, text, the text really gives us a, a neat little picture that, that is some insight into what the teaching is here. Uh, the text goes to great lengths. It talks about verses 30 and beyond that the colt that Jesus, Jesus is riding a colt. It's the colt of a donkey, Zechariah says. So whether it's, a, whether it's a horse or a donkey doesn't really matter. It's a young animal, and Jesus is riding on the colt. But we're told, and, and in fact, the text is really seems to want to get this across to us, that the colt here is one that has never been ridden. So verse 30, go to the village you'll find a cult on which no one is, has ever yet sat. Now, Dawn Boy starts in the front row. She could tell us, but what usually happens the first time a cowboy tries to ride a horse? Doesn't go very well, does it? Or if that doesn't, if that doesn't relate, this is probably better for our church. What, what, what happens when the two-year-old tries to ride the family dog in the living room? If you have a dog big enough for the two-year-old to ride, right? I mean, it doesn't go well. Usually, usually. Usually the animal's response to somebody getting on its back the first time is not, well, you know, this is new. Okay. You know, where, where do you want to go? Let's go. No. The animal, you know, usually a horse, a horse, it freaks out. It kicks and it thrashes. It does everything it can to try to get the one who is on its back off. You have to break a horse. You have to break a horse. And it takes time. 
It's fascinating. Here, here, Jesus, the, the implication from the text is Jesus gets on this colt that has never been ridden, and he just rides into Jerusalem. Now, uh, this is a miracle. I mean, D.A. Carson says this is a miracle. Now, he's a great uh, scholar and theologian. Now, I'm a Seminole fan. I'm a huge Seminole fan, as most of you know. And every few years, you know, our, our mascot is uh, one of the students is dressed as an Indian riding on a horse, these beautiful horses, and every few years we have to get a new horse, a new renegade, and it takes about two years of practice for the new horse to get used to the crowd noise uh, because, you know, I mean, they can be rowdy, and, you know, horses typically, I think the other thing, horses don't like a whole lot of noise in here. This is loud noises, and so you got to get, get the horse ready, and they take about two years to do this so that they can put it through the pregame thing without killing the student riding it and so forth. So here... Here are the crowds. Listen, get it in your mind. Here's the crowd. They're dancing and they're singing. And here's a colt that has never experienced anything like that before, never had anybody on its back, and yet Jesus gets on the colt, the colt that's never been ridden. There's absolutely no problem. It's completely at peace. Because, why? Because it was the master on its back, because he was serving the master. And it's a picture. It's a picture of peace. And it's a picture of the peace that you and I can live with, too, in serving him. And, and, and really, what the te- if you're not at peace, if you're not at peace like that, if you would say, I don't know anything of that that you're talking about, if you're not at peace, it's because you're serving some other king. You've crowned some other king, and whatever it is, it's killing you. It wants you to serve it. And when you fail it, it just beats you internally. You're, you're serving some other king. You're a fish out of water. Crown Jesus king and be at peace. Because Jesus' peace, is the inner calm and quiet that can come into your life, brings courage. Peace is the foundation for resolve. And so, so there's calm that comes at being ruled by the good king that produces confidence. And confidence leads to courage, even courage to risk being sad for the sake of love. So in order to get courage, the courage that we need to be sad, we have to see Jesus, the conquering king. But notice the second thing here, okay? This conquering king is also the weeping king. And so this would have been a very familiar scene to the ancient world, but there's something very different, very different about it that is, that's very instructive for us. Now, when Muhammad entered Mecca victoriously in 629, he was riding, as the, the, the history tells us, he was riding a war horse surrounded by 400 other mounted men and some 10,000 foot soldiers, and it was a show of force, and they killed everybody who got in their way. Jesus, our King, entered Jerusalem not riding a war horse, but a colt. <laughs> it's not a show of force, it's a show of humility. He's not a warrior. And look, pay attention, what, what is he doing? The crowds are throwing down their cloaks before him and dancing and singing his praise. I mean, this has turned into a parade, and he's the Grand Marshal. What would you be doing? And don't act like you haven't, you know, thought of it and, or worked it out already in your head. If anybody ever asks you to be the Grand Marshal of a parade, exactly how you would act. You would, would you do your best princess wave? Right? Would you smile? But what kind of smile? We've practiced these things in the mirror. Wait, do you remember the flannel graphs in Vacation Bible School from years ago? Some of us in, in, when we were kids. What was the expression of Jesus in those old flannel graphs? What was he doing? I mean, you can picture it, can't you? What does the human heart want to do when finally it's getting the praise and the attention that it deserves? 
And this is the most surprising part of the text, isn't it? As they are celebrating him, as they are singing him, as they are lauding him as their king, we come to verse 41 and we see that when he drew near and saw the city, he wept. I mean, that's amazing. I mean, all the other kings were superheroes. Jesus is not. He comes not to make war. Zechariah 9 says he comes to make war cease. He comes not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment. He comes in humility, like the prophet Zechariah says, righteous and bringing salvation. Jesus is the only king who dies for you. If you live for any other king, it will drive you, and, it will, and if you fail it, it will destroy you on the inside, because every other king demands that you serve them. They don't serve you, but this king, this king is different. His tears mean he's different. This king has one demand. I mean, this, is, this, is, this, sounds, this sounds like it can't possibly be right. And I, I've gone over it again and again, and I'm pre- I, I, it feels like it can't be right, but I'm pretty sure it is. What I'm about to say. It feels wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's right. This king that we serve has only one demand. All the other kings demand that you serve them. Jesus has one demand, and his one demand is that he serve you. Do you remember the story? of the disciples around the table at the Last Supper, and Jesus is washing their feet, and he comes to Peter, and Peter says, no way. No way. And he looks at him and says, Peter, if I don't wash you, if I don't serve you, you have no part in me. He's a different kind of king. He's a weeping king. But why is he weeping? What's got him so upset? The text says, verse 41, that when he saw the city, he starts to weep. Jerusalem, that holy city, the city that God loved, the city of peace, that's what Jerusalem means, but there's no peace. That's what starts Jesus weeping. He sees the city of peace, Jerusalem, and there's no peace. It's a broken city. You know, there's a story in the Old Testament about a man named Nehemiah. Nehemiah was an Israelite. He was an exile in Babylon, but a very important man there, and he loved Jerusalem. It was the city of his father's graves. It was his city. And one day a convoy from Jerusalem came to Susa, the capital, with news that the walls of Jerusalem had been broken down and the people were in danger. They were vulnerable. And in Nehemiah 1, it's an amazing thing. This man, Nehemiah, begins to weep. He weeps for the broken walls of his city. But here Jesus weeps for the broken hearts and the broken lives of the people that live in the city. Nehemiah he wept there for the, broke, for, for, um, the physical ruin of, of Jerusalem and the danger it posed to those who lived there. Here, Jesus weeps for the spiritual ruin of his people. They've turned from God. They are hard-hearted and full of sin and rebellion. The crowds are singing and dancing now, sure, but in a few short days they will be condemning him. Here is their king, but we're told that, that they don't recognize him. They don't receive him. They've rejected him. God has visited them, verse 44. That's an important word. It means that God has come in Jesus to search out their ways, but they won't listen. They won't adjust their expectations, and so he will come again to be judged. And that's what verses 42 through 44 are all about. This is what God has Jesus so upset. Because of their sin and their rebellion, there's a judgment that is coming. Do you see that down there? Would that you had known on this day the things that would make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes, and for the days will come upon you when your enemies and so forth. He goes into all that's happening in 70 AD. History has told us that the Romans came and they completely wiped Jerusalem out. God's people were, were conquered and destroyed and scattered to the winds because here their king had come and they did not recognize him. 
They rejected him. They hated him. They killed him. And here's the thing. I mean, these are God's people, the people of his heart, the people he's chosen from before the foundation of the world. Jesus, they've rejected. The ones he loves the most has rejected him. And here's the thing. Jesus isn't angry. He's sad. I mean, that's really remarkable, isn't it? That most of the time, we start off sad, but eventually we get tired and our sadness turns to anger. But Jesus stays sad. It takes remarkable energy and self-control. And so an interesting thing emerges from the Gospels as you really study Jesus' life. And this is my, my friend Paul Miller has, has, uh, has this in his personal Jesus study. It's very helpful. He says, you know, for us, when someone hurts us, when somebody does something and does wrong to us, we get angry. But when somebody else is hurt, we get sad. Jesus is the exact opposite. When someone hurts Jesus, when somebody offends him, when, when somebody rejects him, he gets sad like he does here. And when he sees somebody else get hurt, he gets angry. They reject him and he's sad. He's not angry. See, our sadness eventually pushes us into anger. We start off sad, but we end up angry because our selfishness eventually gets the best of us. Sadness is hard because when you're sad, you're not in control. And, and in, our, in our sin, we don't like not being in control. And so anger is a great option for us because anger is the will trying to regain control when we're hurt by somebody and we become angry. It's our selfishness that's the culprit. They've, they've done wrong to me. I've got to get them back. I've got to get back in control of this thing. And so anger is the will trying to regain control. But Jesus weeps. And the Greek word for Luke uses here is really strong. This is not a tear trickling down his face. This is, this is the ugly cry. I mean, Jesus is overwhelmed. He's overwhelmed by sadness. He's falling apart. He keeps getting sadder and sadder. And just what amazes me is he never becomes angry. Jesus stays sad as hard as it is because there's no selfishness in him. We start sad, but we end up angry because it's easier, because we get tired. We wear down and when there's conflict or drama, and, and our selfishness eventually gets the best of us, but Jesus stays sad. There's no selfishness in him. And here's the thing. If there is no selfishness in him, then it means there's only compassion. Jesus gets angry too, just not here. But his anger is unselfish too. Our anger, the problem with our anger is it's selfish. His anger is selfless. So both his compassion and his anger are rooted in selflessness. Jesus sees the city, he begins to weep. He's full of compassion. Do you know what that means? Do you know what that means? Listen. Listen, no matter who you are, no matter who you are, no matter what your story, Jesus sees your sin and feels compassion. He knows your story. Whatever it is, he knows your story, which is full of bad decisions on your part, but also the pain inflicted on you by others. He knows your pain. He knows your brokenness. He knows the sad parts of what's been done to you, and it breaks his heart. It makes his, him weep. Because Hebrews 4 tells us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who knows what it's like and loves us. Jesus is compassionate, not just towards you in general, but even towards your weakness. Do you understand that? Towards your sin. The very worst parts of you, the parts that drive you crazy, the parts of you that drive you crazy. Right? And I, right? You with me? Are you tracking? The parts of you that drive you crazy, which, by the way, are the same parts that, that drive other people crazy about you. So the parts of you that drive you crazy, the parts that drive everybody else crazy, they don't drive him crazy. 
He doesn't, he doesn't, he's not frustrated. He's not ready to give up on you. He, he doesn't, when you do the same dumb thing you've done a hundred times before, he doesn't roll his eyes and sigh. Like I do. Like you do. He weeps. He weeps for you because when you're in pain, it breaks his heart. Because he loves you. Years ago in my ordination service, in the Baptist church that I grew up in, when, when you were ordained, you would come to the front, and every man in the, in the church that had been ordained would take their turn and would come and kind of put, you know, lay their hands on you and maybe say a few words to you and, and pray for you. Uh, and so I was there in the front of the church, and one man after another that were a part of my life for many years came, and it was an amazing thing. And then my grandfather, who's a very dear man, my grandfather... He came, and uh, he came to where Ashley and I were, and he, and he put his hands on my head, and, and he couldn't even get any words out. He just started to weep. And he just wept over us. And his tears did more to energize my heart than all the other men and all their words because I knew his tears meant he loved me. Have you ever had somebody weep over you like that? Can you imagine what that would be like. Now, I know the objection, right? Isn't God angry at sin? The answer is yes. Of course he's angry at sin. In 40 years, he's going to destroy Jerusalem. But God's emotional life is very complex. It's beyond us. And here we have Jesus' tears. And that's, because of that, it's what I want to draw our attention to because they really are remarkable. No, maybe nobody's ever wept over you like that, but God has wept over you. Over your brokenness and pain. Nicholas Folterstaff wrote about the death of his 21-year-old son, which was a great tragedy to him, and uh, it's a pretty famous little book. And he said in that little meditation, he said, the tears of God are the meaning of history. And by that he meant, at the very beginning, when the man and the woman first sinned, God had a choice. He could be angry and punish them, or he could be sad. And he chose sadness, which is why there's even human history. He chose to suffer, to live with a broken heart. And Walter Staff just asked the question, why? Why would God do this? And here's his answer. He says, these are his words, God is love. That's why he suffers, because to love our suffering, sinful world is to suffer. Suffering is the meaning of our world, for love is the meaning, and love suffers. Listen to this. He says, we're in it together, God and we. The history of the world is the history of our suffering together. Every act of evil extracts a tear from God. Every plunge into anguish extracts a sob from God. But also the history of our world is the history of our deliverance together. And I love this sentence. Listen, he says, God's work to release himself from his suffering is his work to deliver the world from its agony. <laughs> Jesus is cresting the Mount of Olives. The road into Jerusalem will take him down into the Kidron Valley and up the other side into the city, and the place where the road begins to descend, where this worship service is broken out, to this day is a large cemetery. It's a place of death. The Kidron Valley is named so because the river at the bottom would run black with the blood of the sacrifices from the temple. This is a bloody place of death. And on the Mount of Olives here, he's being hailed as king, but he will soon, in just moments, descend away from the sound of their voices into the valley of the shadow of death. See, Jesus' tears mean that God is love, and love means suffering. And so in Jesus Christ, the suffering love of God will be put on full display as he goes to the cross to die for the sins of the world. 
And do you know what the gospel teaches us? It teaches us that God is not indifferent to our misery. Our sin breaks his heart because it causes so much pain. And he has not sheltered himself from this pain, but he's allowed it to enter his heart so that his heart might break with the very things that break our hearts. He has chosen sadness and he has come in Jesus Christ to enter into our suffering so that he might forgive our sin and heal our brokenness through his death and resurrection. See, it takes courage to choose sadness. Courage. Do you know where courage comes from? It comes from knowing you're loved. Do you see how much he loves you in his weeping? He's the conquering king who's also the weeping king. And here's the thing. When you see him, when you see this conquering king who's also the weeping king, his tears will help you find your voice. It'll help you find your voice. Listen, the Pharisees want the, the crowd to be quiet. Don't you love it? And this is my favorite part of the text. They say, can you hush these people up? And Jesus says, I really can't, verse 40, you know, because if I tell them to be quiet, the very stones are going to start to cry out. The Psalms are full of imagery like this, that the king's coming, that the trees clap their hands, and the mountains and the hills find their voice and begin to shout for joy because the creation is groaning and longing for its redemption. And God's love and power are so great that when he comes, we're told the, the creation begins to spontaneously break out in worship. And I would say to you and I, we are condemned by this because we are so reserved when it comes to spiritual things. Our emotions are so muted, and if not muted, they are manipulated. But if the beauty and the glory of Jesus could take inanimate objects and give them a voice, then if we could see his beauty and his glory in his tears, it would transform our stony hearts, our dull hearts, our unfeeling, insensitive, spiritually hard, stony hearts might become hearts of flesh and we would find our voice. And I hope that we do, because we should sing and shout for joy, because if we don't, the pews we sit in are likely to begin crying out for us. If we see the king who is the conquering king, but also the weeping king, we will find our voice, but we'll also, and this is the last thing, just by way of application, we'll find our mission as well. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to the cross, and he wants us to go with him. To do that, we have to embrace sadness. Because to love our suffering, sinful world is to suffer. So if we're going to love, we're going to suffer. So, so here's just three things, very quickly. That means we're going to have to see. We have to see. Jesus saw the city and he wept. We have to see one another. Sometimes we have to rediscover one another. Ashley posted a, a blog that she read this week uh, that was so helpful. This person was just talking about the danger of, of being in relationship with people and then failing to see them. And here, these words were so helpful. Uh, the, the, he said... There's a universe, uh, there's a universe within the people that we love. At best, we know the little plot of land within them that we've mapped out, but there are entire lands and oceans and skies and galaxies we cannot even fathom. We have, at best, rumors of the mystery that exists within the people we spend our lives with. If we stop, if we stop feeling compassion for one another, if we've stopped feeling compassion for one another, it's because we've stopped seeing one another. And it happens. It happens in marriage. It happens in friendship. Not, not seeing, not seeing, but judging. Seeing means we rediscover one another. We live curiously towards one another. We don't make assumptions. We ask questions. We have to see. We have to see the city that God has called us to, the 83% of our city that has no affiliation with any church anywhere, which means there are 83,000 people in Winter Haven, presumably outside of Christ. That somebody has to see. 
and care about and do something about. So where, where do you need to see? Who do you need to see? Not only do we have to see, we have to risk. C.S. Lewis is right. There's no safe investment. If you love, it will mean a broken heart. Love is risky, but it's worth the risk. Courage is rushing into battle, but it's also refusing to shut your heart off from the pain of others. There's only one way, in that famous quote, there's only one way, there's only one place outside of heaven where we can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and inconvenience of love, and that place is hell. So either love or love or hell. Those are the options. So risk in relationships, risk with forgiveness, risk with generosity, risk being taken advantage of, risk being misunderstood. Because there's one certainty, one certainty, God's love for you. Everything else is a risk, but his love is so sure, so true, so steady, so strong, so lasting that we can risk, we can be bold, we can start things and fail. Where, where would he ask you to risk? So we have to see one another and see our city. We have to risk, and lastly, we have to weep. We really do have to weep. We have to choose sadness. Out of loyalty to the one who weeps over our brokenness, we have to weep over each other's brokenness, refusing to be angry, refusing to be angry, not aggravated, not hard-hearted towards one another in our struggles. We have, to, we have to weep over one another in our brokenness, even when that brokenness is the thing that has hurt one another. We have to enter into one another's pain. That's the supreme act of love, to allow your hurt to hurt me. We have to weep over the brokenness of our city, over racism and classism, over the hundreds of children in Polk County and the foster system who have no home to go to. We have to weep over churches acting as if they're in competition with one another instead of collaborating to actually get things done. We have to weep over nonprofits being more concerned with statistical reporting in their newsletters than the people who make up those statistics. Winter Haven is a great city, but it's a broken city, and that should make us sad. It should make us sad. And so we weep. So here's the thing. Where or who do you need to slow down and see? In what area of your life is Jesus, Jesus asking you to take your risk? In what situation do you find yourself angry in a relationship with a person or work or whatever? And you should be weeping instead. There's your mission. There's your mission. This is hard, isn't it? It's hard, it's hard to face sadness, it's hard to endure these things, and so let me just conclude as we come to this table with a word from Psalm 126, where the psalmist reminds us that if we are those, though we be those that sow in tears, all of those that sow in tears are the ones who reap in joy. Those who go out weeping, bearing seed for sowing, are the ones that come home with shouts of joy, bringing sheaths with them. That's the promise of the gospel, and it's the promise for us this morning. It's the promise contained in this meal. So let's pray together as we prepare our hearts to come to the table. So Lord Jesus, we thank you for your great love, your weeping, your weeping heart that led to your death on the cross for us that we celebrate now in this meal. Your body broken for us, your blood shed for us. This is, this is the evidence of your great love for us, your people. And so we come now to this meal. Would you... Would you heal our, our wounded hearts? Would you strengthen us for the battle that you've called us to? Would you nourish us spiritually by this bread and this cup that we might be people who love as you have loved, who endure sadness as you did, who take up our cross and follow after you because that's what you've called, you've called us to. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.
sends us on mission into the world, a broken, hurting world, I know, I know for many of you that means crosses, I know it means sadnesses. Take courage. Take courage, you do not go alone. The one who, from all eternity, has looked upon you in love, promises to go with you in all of his power, and that's the promise of this benediction. That's what these words mean. And so he does not send you to, to face whatever it is that awaits you there by yourself. He will go with you. So receive these words, take courage in them, and then go in love. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.